Let's pray before we we get started. Father, we, uh, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for your deliverance. We thank you, Lord, that we can praise you. We thank you, Lord, that we truly just love you. We love you for all that you've done. We love you for all that you'll do, Lord. And this morning we just want to hear from your word. We want to acknowledge your presence here. Holy Spirit, we wish that you would pierce our hearts, that we would learn to love one another, Lord, and that we love one another better, and that we would express ourselves in praise for you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. My name is Jeremy. I'm the small groups pastor here. So you had to, if you were here last week, you get to endure two weeks of listening to me talk. But before we get started, we have to, me and y'all, we have to work something out for a second because I've got a little bit of a problem. Every week I come up and we do the, uh, we do the welcome and I tell a funny joke and y'all don't laugh. <laughs> David talks about carpet and coffee cup lids and y'all laugh hysterically. Trying to figure that whole thing, because that wasn't funny, but y'all laughed. So you've got to give me courtesy laughs from now on, too, is all I'm saying about that. Uh, because that was... Uh, see, y'all didn't even laugh at that, and I thought that was funny. Oh, thank you. I appreciate the encouragement. I'm looking at you the rest of the time. A uh, couple things as we get started this morning. Uh, we're finishing up Samuel, so y'all can celebrate that. 18 months, done with Samuel. Uh, next week, we'll move on to Leviticus and work through that. <laughs> yes! Um, no, but it's, uh, we're finishing up, and it's kind of fitting that we're stopping here because we're bookending uh, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. Uh, we, we opened 1 Samuel with a, song, with a hymn of praise and a psalm of praise, and we're ending today uh, with Second uh, Samuel 22, which is a, we talked about last week. is pretty much the same as Psalm 18. And so we're wrapping up that second half of that, and then we'll look at David's final words that we see in um, 2 Samuel 23. So we're going to, context-wise, we started last week, we talked about the first four, first four verses of this psalm being David exploding with praise. And then the rest of the psalm is, are all the reasons why we should respond with praise to the Lord, right? It's four verses of explosion, and then 47 verses of here's why I praise God. This is why, here are all the things that he's done in my life, and this is why I respond in the way that I respond. And so we, we came to the conclusion last week that praise and deliverance are hand in hand. That if we're not, if once we experience the freedom of deliverance from, the, from whatever it is that's keeping us from connecting to the Lord, our only and our singular response is to praise him and praise him with everything that we have. Today, we're going to look, it's going to go a little different route throughout, the, throughout this passage because we're going to look at the authority that David has, the strength that he has. And I think we'll, as we finish this up, you'll, you'll kind of follow along with me. You'll see, you know, David looks like a really good guy. And then again, he looks pretty conceited and then he ends with praise again. So it kind of mirrors his life a little bit. But let's open up your Bibles to chapter 22 and we're going to start with verse 32. For who is God beside the Lord, and who is the rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You give me your shield of victory. You stoop down to make me great. You broaden my path beneath me so that my ankles do not turn. 
What we see here in this opening part, it's not really opening part, it's kind of right in the middle, the centerpiece of this, is that David, once again, is acknowledging who God is and God's gifts. David is acknowledging here that he's done a lot, but it hasn't done anything without God. God has given him strength. God has given him authority. God has given him power. And then David reemphasizes the fact that there's only one God. The truth of the matter is that God gives him these things. God is his shield and his refuge. And that God was the only source of his strength. And so that's important to take to, to hold on to right now because we're going to move into the next part and you hear David talk about himself. I did this. I did this. But I think you have to make sure you understand he acknowledges beforehand it's only through the strength of God that he does these things. Let's look at verses 38 through 44. I pursued my enemies and crushed them. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them completely and they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You armed me with strength for battle. You made my adversaries bow at my feet. You made my enemies turn their back in flight, and I destroyed my foes. They cried for help, but there was no one to save him to the Lord, but he did not answer. I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I pounded and trampled them like mud in the streets. So if you read that passage just by itself, Sounds kind of odd. David's like, I did this, I did this, look how great I am. Being someone, I love sports, and, and it kind of reminds me of the guy that, that, that get, sacks the quarterback and then gets up and points to themselves and says, look at me, look at me, and doesn't acknowledge the help that he received from everybody else. But as I looked at it, and you read it in entire context, it's David pointing back to God strengthening him. It reminded me, I thought of a story um, when I was a kid, I grew up, for those of you who don't know me, I grew up in, in Kentucky on a farm, and the value of hard work was huge to my dad. And because it was huge to him, then it in turn was huge to us. That working hard regardless was a primary function of being a member of that family. And so my dad was trying to make a little extra money. He decided, I'm going to build decks for people off the back of their house, which meant... I was going to help him build decks for people on the back of their houses. And so we got to our first project, and he said, here's your job, and he handed me post hole diggers. Some of y'all don't even know what that is, but it's a really, it's like a form of torture, because you take this thing and you slam it against the ground as hard as you can, you pull out, and you bring out chunks of dirt about this thick until you get about two feet deep or three feet deep, however the deep the footers need to be. So he hands me the post hole diggers, and just to put this in context, I was 10 or 11, so give you an idea how big I was, they, the post hole diggers, and I was hitting the ground, and it would hit the ground, and it would bounce over my head back up. There was nothing, ha- I didn't even know how to use the things, it would bounce, it bounces up, I'm over there for a while, and I think I got scratched the surface a little bit, and so my dad comes over, and he grabs the, the post hole diggers, he says, hang on. Was his, was the way he said. So I'm holding the bottom part of it as high as I could. And he's taking the top and he's taking and we're slamming it in the ground and pulling out dirt chunks this deep. And we dig four footers about three foot deep with me holding on to it. And as soon as I got home, the first thing I did was run into my mom and say, you wouldn't believe the holes that I dug. I was really proud of myself. I did nothing. I was holding on to the handles. Dad was digging the holes. I think that's what David's saying right here. I think David is acknowledging, I'm holding on to the sword, but God's winning the battles. 
God is doing these things. God is crushing my enemies. Yeah, look at me as I'm doing it, but it's God's authority, it's God's strength, it's God's power that's accomplishing this. The same way my strength was not digging any holes, my dad's strength was digging the holes. I just have my hands on the post, on the handles. David has his hands on the handles, but God is fighting these battles. God is the one that is winning these things, and God's the one doing this. And David explains that at the beginning, and then when we look at those I statements, I encourage you to look at it through that lens. Yes, David defeated his enemies, but only through the authority and the power of God. And so I look at this two things, two ways. God gives gifts. David lists them there for us, right? David gives, he gives multiple gifts. And have multiple metaphors for strength and the power that he has, like built, uh, bending a bow of bronze. He can't do that. But it's just an idea. Built, bending metal is showing his strength. Feet like the feet of deer. I'm not really sure what that means, but I looked it up. It's other places in, in minor prophets. And really what it means is that someone who has a, who's mentally just capable of dealing with stressful situations. Right? There's the stability about them that's only supernatural. And so David's responding, look how strong I am. I'm able to deal with all the trouble that we've had in Israel from invasions of Philistines to the rebellions of his son. Finally, he trains him for battle. Again, acknowledging God trained me to accomplish this. And finally, as another reward, God gives him greatness. We talked about it last week. Most rulers at the end of their reign set up monuments to themselves. Look at how great I am. Right? Look at all the battles I won. And there'd be monuments all over the place pointing to their greatness. And David gets this. You know, David points to the greatness of his God, not to the greatness of himself. And so this is the only point where we see him acknowledging that he's been successful. And so God gives him this greatness. And David uses the gifts God gives him. God gave him strength, and so he crushes his enemies. God gave him stability to go up against a number of enemies, both in his home, in his household, and exterior enemies that come against him. God gives him the strength to defeat those foes. Excuse me. And then if you weren't sure if he won or not, there's one more metaphor telling us that he pounded them in the dust. And David is in charge. And so what we see here is that God's gifts for David are used by David to establish God's kingdom. Without those gifts, there is no kingdom of Israel. Let me read on in verses 44 through 46, or 43. Excuse me, 44. You have delivered me from the attacks of my people. You have preserved me as the head of nations. People I did not know are subject to me, and foreigners come cringing to me as soon as they hear me. They obey me. They They all lose heart. They come trembling from their strongholds. So once again, David acknowledges that he's been delivered, right? Deliver from, you deliver me from my household. That's Absalom, right? His son rises up against him, and David is delivered from that. David delivers him from foreign enemies. Or excuse me, God delivers David from foreign enemies. God wins battles against the Philistines, but not just that. He also exalts David to leadership over these places. It wasn't uncommon. Actually, it was common that in the ancient world, if you went to battle against a city, that as you took the city over, you would kill all the men and you would sell the women into slavery. And so as people would come up against David, and they realized he's a great warrior, instead of fighting him and that being the result, they decided just, here, take what we have, we'll do what you say. 
will be loyal to you, will be your subject, because we recognize that you have something that we don't, and we're willing to give in to that. And so we see God using the promises he's made in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, to expand the kingdom. If you look at this map, up here in the pink, if you can see this, so these areas, that's what David inherited when he became the king of Israel. God gave him that territory. He succeeds Saul as king, and that's the only territory he has. By the time we get to this point in his life, wait for that next one, please, Kim. Everywhere that you see outlined in this red line is part of David's kingdom. These foreign kings decide, you're greater than us. God has exalted him to greatness, and David responds with taking this land and governing this land as a ruler. And so what we see, God is, God is sure, God is firm in keeping his promises. He promised this nation to David. He gives it to him, and then he expanded and exalts him to a higher place among all those others. Verse 47, the Lord lives, praise be to my rock, exalted, by, exalted be God, the rock, my Savior. He is the God who avenges me, who puts the nations under me, who sets me free from my enemies. You exalted me above my foes from violent men. You rescued me. Therefore, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing praises to your name. He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants. So David ends this psalm the same way he starts it. He ends it with praise for God and what God's done. It's a lifestyle for him. I think that it's something that we, it would suit us well to adopt this lifestyle of acknowledging God's work in our lives and then praising him each time that it happens. David, it seems to come naturally to him that he recognizes it and he moves in that. But the one point I want to focus on here is verse 51. This is one of the most prized promises in all of Scripture, all the promises made to David. And a similar passage exists in 1 Samuel 2.10. So Hannah is singing about praising, she's praising God for, the, for giving Samuel to her, right? And so she ends her song with this verse. She says, He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Samuel never became king, right? We understand that. So she must be pointing to somebody else in the future. This must be a prophetic voice. And I believe verse 51 answers that prophecy. It gives us the insight into that prophecy. He gives his king victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed. To David, here's the answer to the prophecy. To David and his descendants forever. So not only is it pointing towards a Davidic house to rule, but it's also pointing towards the Messiah. It's also pointing towards Jesus. It's vaguely represented here, but we'll see more of that as we move on into, into chapter 23. With chapter 23, it kind of changed voices here. It's called David's last words. They're not really his last words. He wasn't laying on a bed dying and utters these words. It's his last official words that he gives to his people. So these are recorded. They're meant to be Recorded, they're meant to be really important. Last words always carry a more significant um, weight to them. Also, he introduces it himself as an oracle. Oracles are it's the best way. Oracles are prophetic statements used for unusual or highly significant events. 
We don't see many times things called oracles in Scripture, but this is one of those times. And so what we're seeing here is that the author wants us to understand that what's about to come is really, really important. He's setting us up for the words of David are going to be significant and important. Let me read verses 1 and 2. These are the last words of David, the oracle of David, son of Jesse. The oracle of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by, God, by the God of Jacob, Israel's singer of songs. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. Takes an extended time to introduce himself here, right? It's like We know who you are, David, but he takes time again to extend to, to, reintroduce this guy who's anointed by God. This, he's anointed by the God of Jacob, which I think there's a connection there that they want us to make. God used Jacob to establish the nation of Israel, and God uses David to establish the, the royal household of Israel. So I think that connection is being made for us there. Also, we see David here being portrayed as the third and final thing that, that Jesus is portrayed as. David is portrayed here as a prophet we've seen him as king we've seen him operate as priest and in this case he's operating in a more prophetic sense and so we see foreshadowing of how jesus is going to operate if david it points us to jesus from the old testament he takes on the same characteristics not the divine so don't misunderstand me there but at least the offices that Jesus does. We see Jesus described as king in John. We see him described as priest throughout Hebrews. And we see him described as a prophet in Luke and in Acts. And so David takes on those three offices. Is foreshadowing of the offices that Jesus will take when he comes later. Verse 3. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me. When one rules over men in righteousness. When the rulers... When he rules in the fear of God, he is like light of morning at sunshine on a cloudless morning. At sunrise and a cloudless morning. Like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. Is not my house right with God? Has he not made me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part? Will he not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire? But evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with hand. Whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron or the shaft of a spear. They are burned up where they lie. <clears throat> a couple of things. There's three things about that small little part that I think are important for us this morning. The first thing is, is that God's kingdom is certain. There's no doubts. When we look at David speaking here, he is speaking in a prophetic voice. He emphasizes the fact these are not his words, but these are God's words. He wants us to know he's not saying this. God is saying this through him. And David can take confidence that the kingdom is certain because of God's evidence of faithfulness throughout. We see him being promised this throne back in the early parts of 2 Samuel. And it takes decades for David to receive that promise. But he stays the course and he receives the promise. And so David has a testimony to get to the certainty of God's kingdom. We also see that God's kingdom is attractive. David points to this universal ruler who rules righteously and therefore renews people. He renews the people he rules. He refreshes them. And I don't think he's talking about anybody, any of the Davidic kings that come after him. 
I think that, again, the emphasis on this being a divine statement is him pointing, pointing back to Jesus because Jesus is the only attractive ruler that I've ever noticed. I told you, I've taught history for 15 years. And I've talk, talked about kings and queens and governments and all of those things. And you cannot find one throughout history where people said that he didn't, I love this guy. Because rulers of this world, if we describe them, the words we almost always use are corrupt, are power hungry, liars. Those are words we throw around even today with elected politicians. So how much more were they thrown around when they had some type of despot that's been placed over them? But when Jesus comes, when this righteous ruler comes, he comes from a place of refreshing, renewing. The spirit that is, is it's giving, it's not taking. He's the only ruler that comes and says, does, that says, give me your taxes. He says, no, let me give you my life. Find, I challenge you, excuse me, find one other king throughout history that said, I'll die for my people. See, the kingdom's attractive because the ruler is attractive. Jesus is attractive. And the last thing, the kingdom is exclusive. We look at this passage. He tells us there are those who are on the outside. There are those who reject God's kingdom. There are those who don't want to be part of this. And they're thrown away. They're cast out. And in this world of of political correctness and all-inclusiveness, this is a difficult truth to look at in the modern world. You, you, if, you come at this, if you come at this from, a, from a, a rigid perspective, you're labeled as intolerant. You're labeled a lot of different things. And this morning I want to tell you that it, it doesn't do either of those for us, but it creates a sense of urgency. And we're going to unpack that a little more in just a few minutes. So to finish up First and Second Samuel, I think we divided it up in a great place. We didn't go all the way through and do it all in order in Second Samuel. And I think what it does by ending here, it gives us perspective. Because chapter 22 looks back at the establishment of an earthly kingdom. And chapter 23, those first seven verses, point to a future heavenly kingdom. And so I think it wraps it up nicely for us at this point. But there are two things that I want to leave you with as we close this morning. First, the first one is that God's promises are true. David shows us throughout that his promises are true. He is trustworthy. You look at Psalm 119, 140. Your promises have been thoroughly tested and your servant loves them. God promised Abraham, I'm going to give you a child. And he heals Sarah and gives him a child. God heals the Israelites in the wilderness after they're bit, bit, excuse me, bit by snakes. 1,500 years after that, God heals people. He promises His kingdom. We come and it is healing. It comes and it comes in the Gospels and the book of Acts. And another 2,000 years later after that, God continues to heal people. God continues to keep His promises. Jesus says in chapter 14 of John, He says, when I leave, you'll do greater things than me. Paraphrased. If that's a promise that God keeps, that God gives, then God's going to keep that promise. And so we live in the certainty of a kingdom of power that exists on earth. We've not been left alone. We've not been left to our own devices. But the Holy Spirit living in us carries out the promises that God promises here. And greater things than Jesus did on earth, the Holy Spirit does through us. 
that story that Richard told about the lady at the the pre-K. That's a miracle. You can say circumstance or luck, whatever you want to call it. I call it the divine intervention of God and Him working through people at this church up there to put her in a situation where she is thriving. God's promises are true. He keeps them always. And a lot of times we need to be reminded about that. I, was a, I became a Christian, I've told you this before, in 2004. And a couple of years after that, I was, laying, I was at my, in my apartment and kind of getting ready for bed to go to work. And I had this picture of somebody in my head. It just kind of came to the front of my head. And it was somebody that I had hurt through some type of sinful action years ago. And at the time, I just kind of shook it off and I moved on. And then I laid down in the bed and it was like, as I was trying to go to sleep, it was like I was kind of removed from the situation for a minute. And there was this narrator just listing off all of the sins that I'd committed in my life. And I'd get pictures of people and things like that. And I'm sitting in my bed and I'm struggling with this and I'm wrestling with it. I'm, I get up and I go for a walk. Nothing I do seems to keep this record from playing in my head the entire time. And then finally, I decided to pray. Mom probably should have gone with that a little earlier. I decided to pray. And I just go to the Lord and say, I don't know what this is. Your promise says I'm forgiven of these sins. Why am I reliving them? Why am I doing this? And God took me the word. And, and, and again, John chapter 14, do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. God promised me that my sins are forgiven. And he had to remind me that he was trustworthy that he was good, and that he keeps his promises. And like that, this peace came over me where I could rest. And I felt at peace, and I went to sleep. And then ten minutes later, my alarm went off. Um, But the Bible itself is this account, this this historical record of God's reliability. Over and over, we see God making promises and keeping promises throughout, just like he did here. Just like in all of these cases. And I want to tell you, the same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament, is the same God now. And what He did then and what He did in the New Testament, He still continues to do now. It doesn't go away. He continues to give and keep those promises. What He requires from us is our response. And this thing up here, I don't even know what to call it. Quadrant, maybe kind of how we respond to God's promises. And I'm going to skip this part down here at the bottom that says futility because that means you have no life with God and you wouldn't be here if you weren't seeking some type of relationship with Him. So we're going to skip that. And we'll start with fear. Living in fear means that God's promised you something that you just won't take up yet or we won't take up yet. That out of response, we're not sure what's going to happen next and so we want to go after it. We know the promise is true but we don't step into it fully because we're nervous. It's like the The Israelites, when they're coming in the promised land, it's too strong to take. We can't take it. And God say, no, this is the promise I've made to you. Step into it. The other is living in the flesh. This is trying to take promises that haven't been, take territory, take possession of things that haven't been promised to you. Amy and I, we moved to Kentucky back in 2012, and we went up there. We felt completely called, and when we got there, we decided we're going to help with meth addiction. We're going to go after people who were stuck on meth, and we're going to start this huge ministry. But the problem was we forgot to consult God about that. He said go, and then we made plans. 
And so out of our flesh, we try to take possession of something that God didn't promise us. And so when I say it failed miserably, that's an understatement. God wasn't in it. That wasn't the promise he made. And then finally, living in faith, God God has given us a clear promise. And we move out to take possession of it in his way and in his time. It doesn't always happen the way we want it to happen, but it happens the way he wants it to happen. We just have to patiently wait for him and be sure and know that his promises are certain. So hold on to God's promises the same way Hannah held on to hers for a son, the same way David held on to his for a coming king that would represent it would be on the throne forever. The last thing this morning I wrestled with a lot on, on whether to, to, come, to, to bring this this morning. I, it's something I, I called people I debated it, and I finally decided, let's just go for it this morning. God's kingdom, we talked about it, it's exclusive. There are people in our world who are going to hell. There are people in our world that don't know Jesus. There are people in our world that don't want to know Jesus. It's our responsibility to share the gospel. Revelation 21.8 says, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all the liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. There's an urgency that exists when we look at it and we realize that hell exists, it is real, and people are going there. It is our responsibility to share the gospel whenever, wherever, however is necessary, not in some watered-down way that makes it nice and fluffy for people because God doesn't need us to, to water down His truth. It's sufficient without us trying to make it accessible. It's good. We're not. We don't need to make it where, where people feel like it's, the, again, the warm and fuzzies. God's truth is God's truth. Yes, there's ways to present it that doesn't come across as in your face. But let me tell you, I'd rather it come across as in your face as not come across at all. Ezekiel 33, 7 through 10 says, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you wicked person, you will surely die. And you do not speak out to dissuade them from the ways. The wicked person will die for their sin and I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the wicked person to turn from their ways, and they, do, and they do not do so, they will die for their sin, though you yourself will be saved. There's responsibility. We're all watchmen. Our responsibility is not to yell at our neighbor's house as it burns down and say, get out. It's to knock down the door and go pull our neighbor out. That's the truth of the gospel. And all of us have had those interactions with people where we've seen them broken and given up and just resigned to their fate. I had a conversation with a very close relative a couple of weeks ago. And he, said, he asked me, he says, do you think hell is real? And I said, absolutely hell is real. He said, good, that way I have a place to hang out with all my friends. That's heartbreaking. That's earth-shattering for me. That, that wrecked my world because why haven't I been on the forefront of this and say, no, you don't have to be there. You don't have to accept that 
truth. You can, here's a truth of love. Here's a truth of Jesus. Here's what he came to save us from. His promises say he saved us from our sins. And here's an opportunity to move from this world of death and guilt and, and self-wallowing pity into a world of light and love and joy. And it's not about being, being right. It's about hearts breaking for people who don't know Jesus. We're called to be watchmen. The reasons that we do this are all listed up there for you. I'm not going to read though. You can look at those scriptures. But we've been commanded to in Mark, hell exists. Matthew makes it clear. Love your neighbors. And finally, the last one I do want to talk about just for a second. Is our willingness to express the cross of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus creates more gratitude for us. Second Colossians excuse me, Colossians 2.14 Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Speaking from someone who's been forgiven of much. We've all been forgiven of much. But I'm coming from you from a place of, of, of someone mired in sin for a lot of years. When I read this, it creates this overwhelming sense of gratitude. I am dead in my transgressions. I am a sinner that is, that is separated from God. And even then, God decided to send Jesus to die for me. He took those sins, all the, people, all the things I did to hurt people. He took every one of those and took those to the cross. And I've been set free from that. I have to express that to people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I have to preach the gospel. I would say we have to preach the gospel. We know people who don't know Jesus and we just walk by, walk by them, we move all through life with them just because we don't want to offend. And again, if, you're, if your motivation is to prove yourself right, then don't. But if your motivation is, is out of love for your neighbor and love for someone, then pursue their hearts and share the truth of the gospel. And again, not in some watered down way, the gospel is good enough. God doesn't need our help sharing the gospel. He wants to partner with us in doing it. His truth is good enough. So this morning, I'm going to invite Bo to come back up. Ministry teams, y'all can come up as well. So we go and we'll pray for you about anything. Anything at all. But this morning, the two things, if you've been waiting on a promise from God and you're becoming impatient, you're wondering where he is in this situation, we want to pray for you. Let us pray encouragement. Be patient. Or if you're going after something God hasn't promised you, let us help. Let us pray. But also, all of you know someone who doesn't know Jesus. We want to give you the opportunity this morning to come forward. We're going to make this first row into an altar, and you can kneel there. And just bring them to the feet of Jesus this morning. Carry them here. If you want one of the prayer teams to pray with you about that, they'll be willing to pray with you also. But if you just want that, nobody's going to bother you. Nobody's going to come over to you. But if you want to just sit and pray for God to transform someone's heart, I want to encourage you to do that this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We love that you're faithful. 
regardless of our faults and our mistakes, regardless of all the details that we mess up, Lord, you continue to pursue us and you continue to keep those promises. Regardless of how many ways we mess it up, you are trustworthy, you are true, and your promises are yes and amen, Lord, and we believe that this morning. But we also, Lord, will pray for the boldness to share your gospel with people. We pray for your boldness to not just walk along someone in life, but to express the truth of who you are, to express the truth of your sacrifice, the truth of your unfailing love, Lord. Help us, Holy Spirit, share the truth of this gospel, Lord. Bring people to our minds. Let us pray this morning, Lord. We pray for the gospel to break out all over our city. We pray all the time for community transformation, and the only way that happens is if people come to you. Father, we thank you and we praise you for all the places that you've done this in our lives already. Lord, we look backwards and we see all the promises you've kept, and we thank you and we praise you for that, Lord, and we look hopefully and expectantly into the future. We look at those promises, Lord, knowing that we don't conform your promises into our vision, but we just sit and we just wait for what it is that you have us to do. Lord, we pursue you as we pursue your heart. You give more and more. And so, God, we just ask for more of you this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.